This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to episode 11 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. We're coming out earlier in the week than usual because of the news of the past two weeks. Today's topic is, Where is Our Outrage? Before I end today's podcast, I'll offer some suggestions about what we should be doing about all I'm about to address. First, though, some background. Last Friday and Saturday, as you already know, we celebrated Shavuot, the festival of the giving of the Torah. Shavuot is the anniversary of the time we stood before Mount Sinai and God began to deliver his laws to us. And when God assigned us the task of being his Mamlakat Kohanim, the Goy Kadosh, his kingdom of priests and holy nation. That event is the beginning of our story as a people, but it's not where the Torah begins its story. That story begins all the way at the beginning of Bereshit, at the beginning of Genesis. The Torah begins literally at the beginning of everything. Says the Torah, in the beginning of God's creating, God said, Vayhi or, let there be light, Vayhi or, and there was light. Our sages of blessed memory had a very interesting take on those two Hebrew words, four English ones, Vayhi or, let there be light. A rabbi named Barachia, for example, quoting himself and other sages, said that God created the world, quote, only by a word, vayhi or, let there be light, unquote. A much later text, the Zohar, said this light was, quote, the medium for the creation of the world, unquote. In other words, both texts are telling us it was by this light that everything else was created. Everything that exists today, not just in this world, but in the entire universe, and everything that will ever exist in the future, was programmed into that light. The origin of everything that exists or ever will exist in our universe and in our world traces back to that light, a light modern science popularly calls the Big Bang. Then we get to the afternoon of day six, when God creates the first human, known in the original Hebrew text as Ha'adam, which means the Adam, with a lowercase a, the human. A Mishnah, a rabbinic text from nearly 2,000 years ago found in the Babylonian Talmud tractate known as Sanhedrin, wonders rhetorically why only one human emerged on day six, a hermaphrodite no less, half male and half female. Here's the answer it gives. Quote, so that one person will not say to another, my ancestor is greater than yours, Unquote. In other words, the appearance in Breshit Aleph in Genesis 1 of a single hermaphrodite creature called Ha'adam, the Adam with lowercase a, the human, was meant to teach us that no one human could ever claim to be better than any other human. This is true regardless of gender, or skin color, or religion, or nationality, or parentage, or whatever other artificial divisions we create to keep us apart from each other. All people come from one person. All people are brothers and sisters to each other. All people are responsible for all other people. We're all one family. Our family is even larger than that, by the way, but I'll discuss that towards the end. This message of a common universal ancestry was reinforced in Boishit Perik Hay in Genesis chapter 5. Quote, Ze Sefer Toledot Adam. This is the record of the human line. In the day God created the human, he created that human in his image, male and female created he them. Unquote. All humans descend from that Ha'adam, from that first human. Human, mistakenly referred to as a man called Adam with a capital A, there was no such person. The text is clear on this, in Genesis 1 and again in Genesis 5. 
Male and female created he them, it says, not just some guy named Adam. And for the record, when God in Genesis chapter 2 decides to separate this original hermaphrodite human into male and female humans as we understand what humans are supposed to look like, the first full human is a woman. The man came second. A rabbi of the late 19th century, Samson Raphael Hirsch, commented that this proves the total equality of men and women. He wasn't the only rabbi to say that, by the way. This message of a common ancestry and natural equality is reinforced by the Great Flood. At the time of the Flood, the human line descended from two of the first couple's children, Cain and Seth. Noah was a descendant of Seth, and only he and his family survived the Flood, so all humanity traces its ancestry from Ha'adam, from the first human, through Seth. We're all the children of Seth. There's something else as well. The Torah is supposed to be our story, the story of Am Yisrael, the people Israel. But it doesn't begin with our story, as I mentioned earlier. It devotes its first 11 chapters to the story of humankind. We don't even begin to come into the picture until Abraham is called, and as much as he's our founding father, he's also the founding father of many nations. It's only when we get to Jacob that the Torah finally gets down to focusing on us exclusively, and it's only when we stand at Sinai and are designated as God's Mamlechet Kohanim Begoy Kadosh, his kingdom of priests and holy nation, that the reason for our being is given. God created humanity and hoped people would intuitively understand how to live together. They didn't. A terrible bloodlust descended on the world. People killing people was a global pastime. Humanity was inhumane. So ten generations after creation, God sent a flood to wipe out all humanity but one family, and to start all over again with that family, with Noah's family. That didn't work either. Ten generations after Noah, with the world as bad as it was before the flood, God tried another approach. God called Abraham and had him start a family that would grow into a nation that would stand at Sinai and become God's walking, talking, breathing instruction book to humankind. And then, when we'd grown into that family and suffered the indignities of slavery, God lifted us up from being the lowest of the low and gave us our task to teach the world by example how all people should live. The Torah's message is clear and unambiguous. All humanity is descended from the same source. We're all the children of Ha'adam through their son Seth. We're all brothers and sisters, regardless of who we are, where we come from, what our gender is, what side of town we live in, what our income may be, what position we hold, what language we speak, or what the color of our skin is. So where's our outrage when a white police officer pushes his knee into a black man's windpipe for seven minutes and kills him, kills Floyd George, because he apparently tried to pass a forged $20 bill? Where was our outrage nearly six years ago in July 2014 when a white police officer on Staten Island killed a black man with a chokehold because he thought that man, Eric Garner, was selling single cigarettes from a pack that didn't have a tax stamp? For that matter, where was our outrage when a white woman walking an unleashed dog in Central Park called the police because a black man told her the dog was supposed to be on a leash? Or when a person is stopped by a police car for no other reason than driving while black? We've been outraged by the looting that went on, by the destruction of property that went on, by the attacks on Jewish institutions, and rightly so. There are always people in every community of every color who will take advantage of a bad situation and give a bad name to a righteous protest. But why aren't we outraged by the event that brought about that righteous protest in the first place? 
Why aren't we outraged by the economic uncertainties faced by underprivileged communities, especially black communities, that often lead to violence and upheaval? Economic uncertainties that are the outgrowth of income inequality in this country that we also seem to care little about. Why aren't we outraged when the President of the United States orders an anti-fascist protest group to be labeled a terrorist organization, but doesn't allow the same designation to be attached to the Ku Klux Klan? Why aren't we outraged when that same president orders people to be tear-gassed and beaten so that he could have a clear path to cross a street and then, from the steps of a church, hold up a Bible and use it as a campaign prop? Too many of us are tired of hearing the slogan, Black Lives Matter. I'm tired of it too. But only because the word black shouldn't be there and should never have been there. It should always have simply been all lives matter, because all lives do matter, because we're all the children of Seth. It wasn't a black man who was killed. It was our own flesh and blood who was killed. Our own flesh and blood, no matter what he looked like. In a very real sense, when blacks are discriminated against, we're discriminated against. So why aren't we outraged when they're discriminated against? We have common cause with each other. Signs all over America once made that clear, and there are still such signs out there today. Anti-Semitic signs attacking Illinois' governor and Minneapolis' mayor, both of whom are Jewish. One particular kind of sign in the last century was Leo Frank hanging from a tree outside an Atlanta jail, lynched by the Klan because he was a Jew. A scenario blacks are all too familiar with, but one we seem to push out of our collective memory. The other signs were more common and less lethal. No Jews, blacks, or Catholics allowed. No Jews, blacks, or women allowed. At the University of Southern California, no less, there were signs all over the campus that read, No Jews, blacks, or Orientals allowed. And very often, there was this charmer. No Jews, blacks, or dogs allowed. The common thread for so many of these disgustingly racist signs was no Jews or blacks. Everything else was regional. For the haters, Jews and blacks were two sides of the same coin. That's what the haters believe. So why don't we? I remember once when Sammy Davis Jr. was appearing at a club in Washington, D.C., and the late, unlamented American Nazi party leader George Lincoln Rockwell paraded in front of the club with a dog with a sign attached to it. I may be black, it said, but at least I'm not Jewish. In Bergen County, New Jersey, where I live, we had an active Ku Klux Klan in the 1930s and 1940s, and its mantra was, no Jews, blacks, or Italians allowed. Behind my home is a country club that once barred Jews from membership. If you were Jewish or you were black not too long ago, try getting a hotel room in Saratoga, New York, or an apartment in Manhattan's upper-class Murray Hill section, or a membership in New York's prestigious city club. Try getting a job in the banking industry or a seat on a corporate board. The freedoms we cherish today were still mere words when I was a teenager, and that was a decade or so after the book and film Gentleman's Agreement, If you haven't read the book or seen the film, you should. It's an eye-opener. My late former sister-in-law, Essie, was fired from her job as a bank teller when it was discovered she was Jewish. In my late teens, I was fired from my job as a law librarian for a prestigious Park Avenue law firm, Satterley Warfield and Stevens by name, when folks there realized I was a religious Jew. The office manager at the time, Mr. Devine, made no bones about it, said he, We don't hire your kind here. Imagine telling that to an 18-year-old. Did you want to go to medical school? Law school? Many of them wouldn't let you in, and the ones that would had strict quota systems. The civil rights movement began to change all that, and Jews were very much a part of that movement. During the 1960s, nearly half the country's civil rights lawyers were Jewish. 
More than half the white civil rights workers were Jewish. And of course, some of its martyrs were Jewish, such as Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, who were killed in Mississippi during Freedom Summer, along with James Cheney, who was black. Their murderers saw no difference, and there was none. The NAACP was founded in 1911 and funded in significant part by Jews, such as Henry Moskowitz and Lillian Wald, and Jews also helped lead it back then. 1914, the NAACP even elected a Jew to be its chairman, Columbia University professor Joel Spingarn. The late Julius Rosenwald, who built Sears Roebuck into a national institution, was a major donor to the NAACP and helped establish the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund. When he died, the executive secretary of the NAACP at the time, Walter White, said, quote, No man is more revered and deeply loved among American Negroes than that of Julius Rosenwald, unquote. Rosenwald did a lot more for the black community than fund the NAACP. Among other of his philanthropic activities, he built schools, over 5,300 in fact. Most of those schools were in rural southern communities. He built more schools for blacks in the South than their own local governments did. So why aren't we outraged at how the leaders of both the Jewish and black communities and how the individuals within those communities, including you and me, have allowed this history to vanish, have allowed the solidarity we once had to lapse into discord and distrust to the point of seeing synagogues and Jewish businesses deliberately targeted by protesters? One such synagogue targeted this week in Los Angeles, Eitz Jacob, was named for its founder, Jacob Tannenbaum, the patriarch of the family I'm now privileged to be a part of. There was a long line of helmeted, shielded police officers blocking the way to the synagogue on the part of protesters bent on evil. One reason for the divide that now exists between our two communities is obvious. The civil rights movement worked for us a lot quicker than it did for blacks. Not because the white world liked us better than they liked black people, but because we could pass for white, something not possible for blacks. I got my job at Satterley, Warfield, and Stevens because I was white. I was fired from my job because I asked to go home at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, which happened to be Erev Rosh Hashanah. I'd always been told I could go home early on Fridays because none of the partners were around anyway and most of the associates were gone, so there was nothing for me to do, but I still asked for permission, and that gave me away and washed away my white skin. I was fired first thing Monday morning. We should never have allowed ourselves to be divided from each other. Hatred of the Jew and hatred of the black have gone hand in hand in this country for a very long time. Even today, white, at least as used by the haters, doesn't include us. To the haters, a Jew is no more white than an African American or Hispanic American or an Asian American or a Latino American or a Muslim American. We're in the same fight. We still face a common enemy. In June 2015, a black church in Macon, Georgia was torched. Early the next morning, a mainly black church in Charlotte, North Carolina was also set ablaze. Just one week before the Charlotte fire to the day, nine people were murdered in Charleston, South Carolina's Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, one of the oldest black churches in America. In the rarest of instances of coming together among Judaism's major religious streams, the mainstream rabbinic organizations of the Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform movements declared Shabbat that week to be a Shabbat of solidarity with the African American community. They urged rabbis to speak out, in the words of the joint statement, quote, on the issue of racism in society and to express rejection of hateful extremism, unquote. As I said, this was the rarest of instances of Judaism's major religious streams coming together, for good reason. The three horrendous events that brought that about were too blatant to ignore. 
But where is our outrage when only one or two black people are involved and the perpetrator is a police officer? Where is our solidarity Shabbat then? Make no mistake, just as when a black church burns, a synagogue is burning. So when a black person is killed for no credible reason, a Jew is killed for no credible reason. When a black person is denied a basic right, any basic right, a Jew is being denied that basic right. We can't allow ourselves to forget that. We dare not forget that. And while we're at it, we dare not let others influence us to forget that for one reason above all other, because of who we are, because of what the Torah says we are, because what we celebrated Shavuot last weekend to remind ourselves of who and what we are. We're God's Mamlechet Kohanim V'goy Kadosh, God's kingdom of priests and holy nation the people tasked by God to show, by example, how people should live. What example are we setting when such horrible things happen and we don't see it as much our problem as someone else's? Out there in the rest of the world, people still hate other people because those people are a different color, or a different shade of the same color, or a different religion, or a different part of the same religion, or are from a different ethnic background or because they speak a different dialect of the same language. This is a very messed up world with values very out of sync with the principles of justice and equality and equity that were made the foundation stones of the world with two simple words spoken by God, Vaihi or, let there be light. Where is our outrage when someone seeks to cover that light with the blackness of hate? While I'm at it, and not meaning to trivialize what came before, where is our outrage when the flora and fauna of the world are threatened? That light of creation created everything. As I said at the beginning, everything that is or ever will be has its origins in that light, and our family is much bigger than just humanity. Just as all humankind can trace their origins back to the original first human, to the hermaphrodite Adam, we all can trace our origins even further back to that sudden creative burst of life. If everything that exists originates to that sudden creative burst of light, if everything that exists originates with that light, and science says it does just as the Torah says it does, so this is not religious dogma, but actual fact, that in a sense makes everything in this world, every animal, every tree, everything, our relatives. Here's how the biblical commentator, grammarian, and philosopher Joseph ben Abba Mari ben Kaspi put it in the 14th century. The 14th century, not the 19th of Charles Darwin or the 20th of the Big Bang. All creatures, he said, in the sea, in the air, on the ground, from the smallest to the largest, are, quote, ilu avotenu, unquote, meaning they are like our ancestors. In other words, we and they were formed from the same substance, so they are as much our ancestors as are our human ancestors. We're all part of the same family, not just the family of Ha'adam, but the family of Vaihior, let there be light. So where is our outrage when animals are abused, or when forests are stripped of their trees, or rivers are polluted, or when carbon emission standards are relaxed or obliterated entirely? Shavuot marked the anniversary of the day we received our reason for being Am Yisrael, for being the people Israel. The anniversary of the day we were given our working papers as God's kingdom of priests and holy nation. So where is that example we're supposed to be setting? Where is our outrage? Having said all this, just what is it that we should be doing? Here are some of my thoughts. I encourage you to share some of your own with me and to post some of those thoughts on my Facebook page for others to see and comment on. 
First, in addition to donating whatever we can to help people who are in distress because of COVID-19, we need to donate to organizations such as the Anti-Defamation League and the NAACP that seek to promote brotherhood and understanding. Second, we need to hold our elected officials' feet to the fire. We need to demand that they get serious about improving social equality laws and for them to see that these laws are fully enforced, not just lip service paid to them. And we also need to insist that they have more effective sensitivity training for law enforcement officers. Third, we need to be more aware of the candidates for whom we vote. We need to be less concerned about party labels and more concerned about what they stand for on these basic issues and what they've done until now to advance those issues. There are two trite sayings that fit perfectly here. Talk is cheap and actions speak louder than words. We mustn't allow ourselves any longer to be swayed by fancy phrases. Results are all that truly matter. Fourth, we also need to be more involved in the school board election process, if there is such a thing in our communities. And we need to see to it that the people we put on those boards and who run our schools will work towards integrating the message of equality and brotherhood and justice on the one hand, and concern for everything else in this world on the other, into the educational system for the youngest ages to the oldest. Fifth, we need to have our synagogues reach out to the churches in our area to join together for solidarity weekends at least twice a year, and also whenever an outrage like what we've experienced occurs. Sixth, our rabbis need to address our common humanity from the pulpit more often than they do if they do at all. I know I bring it up over and again, and people are probably getting tired of hearing the same song from me, but it's a song they need to learn how to sing too. Those are my suggestions. I'd like to hear your thoughts about what I've said today and about what you think we should be doing to help bring such horrific events to an end, about how we can help promote brotherhood and sisterhood among all people so that such horrific events never again happen. Go to www.shamai.org and email me, please. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. Stay healthy. Stay safe.